Why, hello there. It's me, Jeremy, your favorite bald dude telling you about Standard and Strange, a store and a brand with simple rules. Sell clothes they themselves would wear, manufacture it ethically, and build it to last. From boots made in Oregon to loop wheel garments made in Japan, find all the best clothes for your wardrobe at Standard and Strange. Standardandstrange.com. Hey folks, it's Jeremy Kirkland. You're listening to Blammo. How are we doing? Well, we're doing it. We're doing it. We're here. Here we go. Okay. I gotta tell you, I'm in a great mood lately. I'm not I'm not sure exactly what it is, but I'm just trying to keep all the vibes positive. I got my foot on the gas. I'm uh I'm I'm trying to walk a little taller. What, what how many analogies do you want to talk about being feeling good? I'm even I'm even getting into my spring fits. You guys getting ready for spring? The spring fits? Don't lie. I know you got your eyes on stuff. Uh, I'll tell you, I got some stuff tailored. So I'm, I've been trying to hit the gym, you know, getting bigger here, getting smaller here, whatever that is. Um, but yeah, I've been going to the gym, getting getting clothes altered. It's fun. Um, especially because I have so much crap <laughs> that uh, as I try to purge and get rid of clothes, I'm finding stuff that I'm like, you know what? I wonder if I fit in this. And uh, magical time at the tailor. Now I'm fitting in it. It's a new Jeremy. I'm doing it. I'm doing all the stuff. Just all positive vibes. <laughs> um, on that note, my guest this week, Mr. Mike Nouveau. He's a vintage watch specialist. He's a dealer. I'm, I got a lot. It's a very hard to summarize guy because he's, he's done everything. He's a real renaissance man. Okay, I, I, and I don't use that term lightly. He's worked at Rolling Stone. He's worked at Paper Magazine. He's DJed around the world, and he is the titan, and I would say the like the godfather of watch talk. Um, but I want to pause for one second because th- there's a there's a stigma around watch dealers or people in the watch industry, and it's how. Let's just be honest. Sometimes it's a little slimy. It looks like a guy's opening his coat. <laughs> you know, what do you think of this? I got you know. Mike is the polar opposite. I mean, his videos on, on TikTok and, and Instagram and stuff, they frequently show all the behind the scenes of what goes into buying and selling watches. And uh, he's, just, he's just a person that you're rooting for. I swear, we talk about this on the pod. I want this guy to get a TV show. Um, I know there's, some, there's some, uh, some Netflix or whatever folks that listen to this. Find him. You know, I can, I can be junior producer. <laughs> but he's great. And, and so I'm just, I'm so glad to have him on the show. Uh, Mike and I discussed his life growing up in New York, his path into watches, blowing up on TikTok, why the market is obsessed with Cartier. Oh yeah, we really went there. And he explained it better than anyone. Collecting auction catalogs, legendary barn finds, and why the grails are still out there. Let's go. Anyway, Mike Nouveau. Yes. Is Mike Nouveau your real name? Uh, for all intents and purposes, let's say it's my real name. Okay. Okay. That's fair. It's, yeah, my, it's, you, my, it's my professional name. Your professional name. Mm-hmm. Damn, I want a professional name. You could have one. I just have like a, I don't, well, I do have one. It's my real name and it's stupid. You could just be Jeremy Kirk. You know what? My, my secret name that I've done for things like bad message boards was mm-hmm. Jason Karkland, <laughs> including the crack. Yeah. Like, yeah, it was just like Jason Karkland or I would do like my coffee name would be uh, Jay because mm-hmm. people would be like, always get my name wrong, but I don't have a cool name. People would get Jeremy wrong? Yeah, at a coffee shop? Yeah. I mean, you'd say Jeremy and you'd get Jamie, Johnny, Jason, and I'd just be like, Jay. Hmm. 
Well, because okay. it's loud in there. I mean, I tend to go to coffee shops where. Yeah, I like more subdued you know, coffee shops. Yeah, I, I don't go to all the cool, the cool spots. My, mine. I live in the suburbs now. Mike. Oh, that's true. It's just a yeah. It's a it's a loud Starbucks. And uh, yeah, I'm I'm a broken man. Um, but anyway, yeah, thanks for for coming on the pod. Thanks for bunch of me. stuff I want to talk to you about. Uh, obviously, we'll, we'll talk about the watch dealing stuff, but I kind of want to get into some of the nitty gritty. Sure, because we we met not that long ago, but we had found out that we have like a bajillion overlapping friends. Yeah, I'm actually surprised that it took so long for when, when we first met. I didn't know anything about you and. Cameron, Cameron Barr from Craft and Taylor was like, you know him, you definitely know him. You have a million overlapping circles for, you know, probably over 10 years. I'm like, I don't know if I do, but I'm typically, there's a lot of people like that, that people You're on the scene. would have assumed that I knew or met that I, you know, had didn't, had no knowledge of whatsoever that only now am I being like, wow, how did I never know this person? So yeah, we had a lot of crossover over for I guess the crossover would be for over 10 years, but we didn't oh, meet until least. last year, really. Yeah, because I've known Kara Monica for eons. I, I, I mean, I didn't, probably not as long as you. No, I've but, known yeah. him for less than I've known you. Yes, I, I, don't, I only know him for a year. Wait, how did you meet Kara Monica then? <laughs> Um, through, through a mutual friend, not related to media or fashion in any way. Uh, okay. <laughs> it's, it's Do you through, guys have the same dealers? <laughs> no, no, no. Nothing like that. Just through, through a mutual friend. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Um, I do want to get into some of the DJ stuff because sure. when I, you know, when, when we had started to make connections of friends and stuff that we had, you, ba- you and I were basically around the same scene a ton mm-hmm. in the LES as a DJ. Um, yes. me, not as a DJ, me as a clown, but you as an actual mm-hmm. DJ. Um, where, talk me through like some of your backstory. Cause like, where are you from originally? So I'm from Nyack, New York, which is in Rockland County, which is not Long Island. And we don't call it upstate, but it's, it's the southernmost county west of the Hudson in New York. So it's like, um, wow, that's specific. I know. Well, because every time I say it, someone's like, oh, that's Long Island. I say no. They're like, oh, it's upstate. Well, I'm like, well, if you're born and raised in Manhattan, you might call it upstate. However, it's the southernmost right. county west of the Hudson. Um, it's only 20 miles away. It's on the Hudson. It's in, it's in the Hudson Valley. So I grew up coming to the city, you know, to go skateboarding, um, you know, as a later teen to go to like clubs and bars and stuff like that and kind of just uh, participate yeah. in <laughs> downtown nightlife um from from as soon as like as soon as i could because my town was basically like a commuter town like everybody's parents were from like brooklyn or the bronx and and they all worked in the city or whatever yeah and yeah we were me and everyone my age were kind of like the first generation i mean not you know not not in in history of time but you know the kind of it was a 1950s suburban town oh yeah and that's you know like a madman town yeah basically where people left the city to move so both my, right, both my right. parents are from the Bronx and their parents, my dad, on my dad's side, they're Polish. My mom's side's Italian. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. So anyway, I grew up there. I grew up skateboarding. Skateboarding was like the most important part of my life um, for many, many years. And that's where I kind of made my core group of friends. And that extended to like punk and hardcore music. Um, and just because we were so close to the city, that's, you know, where we would kind of go. Um, and that original kind of group of friends you know I f- we first started coming to the east village basically which is where i still live 20 years later um that ir- original group i can still kind of trace everything back to that in terms of like you know into nightlife into fashion um into watches like it all like it all goes back to i could trace it back to basically skateboarding oh really yeah. that i didn't even know you skated it, it is crazy everyone i talk to there's some whether they were obsessed with it and really good at it or they were just super into it and not good at it like me i mean it, it's 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 like this 
cultural upbringing. It's like, uh, I don't know. Yeah, that, that's that's crazy. So you were here, you were skating. Are you still are you still close with, you know, your your old friends? Uh, not so many of them. Basically, like none that I actually went to high school with, but I am close still with a few <laughs> friends from my town. Um, oh, nice. Yeah, but I mean, you know, really probably not very many. Um, yeah. You know, there's a few. Um, and there's a few that I was not really close with who like, since we both ended up in downtown Manhattan, kind of like we'll talk on Instagram or Facebook or something. But the other weird thing about my town is how many people never leave the town despite it being so close to Manhattan. Like my sister has probably been to Manhattan like under 10 times and we're from 20 miles away. Like it's just, there's a lot of people who just like, I don't want to call it a fear of the city, but just like they're comfortable and they're, you know, and we're not talking about, you know, rural country. This is like pure suburbs, you know, New York metro area. Um, but anyway, to answer your question, though, I don't see that many people from from my hometown here. Yeah, that because that was the thing is I feel like folks I know who grew up in the vicinity mm-hmm. of New York or around there, you're just a lifer. It's in a way, it's like all of culture is right outside your door. So there's really not much of a reason to explore otherwise. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I definitely feel, especially since moving away, to where you're like, damn, like I I had it so good, but you know, you're like addicted to the to the stress. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I could ever leave Manhattan to be honest. Like, I don't know if I'll I'll likely die here. Like, I don't I don't know where for me the only, the only thing that like when I, if if I'm bored here and you're like damn I'm bored how could I be bored in the middle of downtown New York the only the only thing the only place I think that is like above this is Tokyo probably in terms of just uh stuff going on and general craziness um you know food uh, nightlife fashion like I think that's the only thing that could potentially compete yeah, with New York yeah I mean Tokyo is like a big circus that's super mm-hmm. efficient <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Agreed. Um, so how did DJing stuff come in? So you, you're you here, you're skating, you're hanging out. Mm-hmm. Is the natural, yep. you know, w- w- was the linear path from skateboarding to LPs? Um, well, you know, we'd go to a lot of like kind of like skater bars or whatever. And there was some crossover with, you know, downtown early 2000s. There was crossover with music and there's crossover with punk and fashion. Yeah. Um, so because this is like strokes a- era. Yeah, yeah, basically. I mean, maybe even like a little, I mean, or like 2003. Yeah, okay. So um, I know a lot of people do measure it by the strokes. I was never a strokes really? fan. Um, yeah, I mean, I liked Interpol. That was like the New York band yeah. I liked. Um, strokes never did it for me. And I know people, me- people measure time in the strokes. <laughs> people like measure the New York City generation in the strokes. But like for me, it was like, I don't even know what year was the first album. Probably be- definitely before I got here. 2001. Yeah. So that was like, I was still in high school. Um, but also the same for Turn On The Bright Lights. Yeah. Because I true. think we're, we're about the same age. I mean, Turn On The Bright Lights was my, that was, that was my dark side of the moon in a lot of ways. Like it, it's, it, that was also yeah. an important album for me for sure. But again, I didn't like, I didn't care about the strokes at all but a lot of people did obviously um so i kind of met people who were throwing so the first i guess if you remember the motherfucker parties yeah yeah so that was kind of like my because those were going on for a long time and those used to happen like i guess quarterly like they'd usually be like the night before like a major holiday um and i would come down well before i was 21 to like go to those parties and that was kind of like my first uh experience with um kind of like that aspect of nightlife where it was like very fashion. It was very mixed. It wasn't like all straight. It wasn't like all gay. It was like very, very blended. There'd be like punk rooms and there'd be like house rooms. Um, and it was just like a very fun mix. And I'd never seen anything like that. Um, so that was kind of my first look into that life. And then I found out that people were doing like much smaller versions of parties like that every single week, like at a different bar, like every Thursday would be this bar. Every Monday would be this bar. 151 or whatever. Yeah, I mean like yeah. Arthur 
13 or, you know, Max Fish lit dark room, uh, beauty bar stuff. Like there'd be a specific party every night of the week. Um, I was like, wow, this is amazing. I cannot believe this goes on every single night with like, I mean, I knew nightlife was happening everywhere, but like this, it seemed like so niche. How could there be that many people that were into this stuff? Like I couldn't believe it. There was enough to build bars at least every single night. Um, and then I would, you know, I befriended some of the DJs. I befriended some of the promoters and I saw people. I saw that it was kind of easy that if you had, if you were able to bring a group somewhere, I mm. mean, I think probably it was like, hey, if you, someone was probably like, if you can bring 20 people to this party on this night, we'll give you 200 bucks cash. I'm like, oh my God, I would, I would have done this for free. Like, this is amazing. <laughs> and then kind of from there, I was like, let me see if I could throw my own party. So, um, I put together like, a few one-off parties without me DJing this before I was even a DJ and I was booking other DJs. And then after a few of those, and they, they were, they did fine only because I promoted them like so heavily that, that they, they couldn't fail. I mean, we were, we were literally like printing flyers and handing out flyers in Tompkins Square Park and Union Square. And then after that, I, you know, I, I became much closer friends with a lot of the DJs I was booking and I was watching them do this. Like we were DJing with CDs basically. Um, yeah, yeah. And I was like, I think I can do this because we're just playing the Clash and the Cure and the Smiths. Like, I, I, I think I could probably figure this out. So one of the guys was like, yeah, come come next week early and I'll, I'll show you how to do this. And, you know, the, the barrier of entry was extraordinarily low. I think it was a very good time to start doing it. So I started doing it and, the, you know, that was it. Um, I should also mention yeah. that at the same time, I had like a day job. I worked at um, Rolling Stone magazine in a very non-glamorous position um, because I have a friend from my hometown kind of like hardcore scene who had gone to school, which I hadn't. I hadn't gone to college and he had gotten a job as like an advertising assistant at Rolling Stone. And I kind of like put together this plan in my head where if I could become his intern, then I would just stay there until they offered me a job without any school. So oh, yeah. I asked and he's like, I'm actually, you know, I, I control, you know, I, I hire all the interns for this department. Um, So if you want to come intern, come, sh- come here on this day and, you know, we'll hire you as an intern. You come in two or three days a week. Yeah. So I was driving into the city and I was like parking at, you know, in uh, like Rockefeller Center. And if you got there before like 7 a.m., it was much cheaper. So I would get there, um, you know, very early, park my car um, and then intern for free and then come home. And I was delivering pizza at home at that, you know, in my hometown, I was delivering pizza for like the local pizza place that uh, we kind of grew up going to um, while skateboarding, while going into the city at night to go to these clubs. Um, and wait, how old are you at this time? Probably like 19, 19 okay. to 20. When I, and so yeah. I was interning and then when I, and then my friend got a promotion at Rolling Stone and I applied for his job. I remember I had really long hair and um, I came in. They're like, OK, like you can apply, but it's going to be like a proper interview, even though you're already interning here. So I came in wearing a suit, which they had like a, they had never seen me. And I cut my hair. I cut all my hair to like real proper length. And they were like amazed because they knew me as this like this like hipster into super long hair. Um, this just this intern. And I came in and they I applied and they gave me the job. Um, so I was like, damn, I just like skipped four years of college. Basically, they never even asked about college. College. Like I skipped like student loans. I skipped all of this um, just by having this friend like I knew through skateboarding and hardcore music. Um, and so I worked there for two years. And at the same time, I'm DJing several nights a week and coming into work, coming into work like a zombie. The other thing I haven't mentioned is I don't drink. I've never drank in my entire life. So that kind of, I guess, made things easier. Um, ne- so never drank and never done anything? Never. Nothing. Never even tried. Never started. So wait, why, I'm not religious. Why is that? I've, I'm, yeah. I'm fully an atheist. I have no history of alcoholism in my family. I just never started. I don't really know why because I got into plenty of trouble as a youth 
through skateboarding and other stuff. I just never started. I don't know why. People ask me all the time. They think I have like alcoholism, which I don't. I have no history in my family. I have no issues with it. So many of my friends are, you know, in AA, et cetera. Um, and a lot of people yeah. just assume I'm in recovery. I'm not. I've never drank in my entire life. That's another like funny little aspect. Um, oh my God. I know. So all this, I'm doing all this sober. So I got the job at Rolling Stone. I had to move into the city. I had to move really quickly. And I got an apartment above Veneros on 11th Street with another kid from my hometown. We were roommates. We were paying like $1,400 for a two bedroom. Um, it's good. That's a nice area. Yeah. I'm, I'm still very close to there. Um, so at the same time, there's this party, the misshapes where yeah. I befriend everyone involved in that party and they're still my close friends to this day and I started you know kind of DJing there fairly frequently and that was very popular that was like celebrities were going like fashion designers you know I, I was very into fashion I just picked up this love of fashion so I kind of as a DJ positioned myself in kind of the fashion world because that's what I was interested in um, yeah because is this like Luke and Leroy yeah, yeah Luke era? and Leroy exactly before they moved to Don Hills so right. I mean, that was a big party that I loved um, um, Rough Club came a little bit later, if you remember Rough Club, where, which I was also a part of. Um, yeah. And that was like very popular at the time. I was doing like a night at Lit. Um, I was going to like uh, DJ Jess's parties, who he passed away, but he was like, a, he helped me out a lot in the beginning. Um, so I was doing stuff like that. So I was DJing like five nights a week, these like very hip parties, and I still had to wake up and go to work the next day. So after two years at Rolling Stone, I moved to Paper Magazine, which was like a big cultural change. Oh, yeah. I Unfortunately, they had just moved. Wait, cultural change, really? Well, Rolling Stone was very corporate. Um, And like towards the end, like everyone, there was like 100% turnover. There was like no one who was there when I was hired was there when I left. Um, mm. So I applied for a job at Paper. Unfortunately, Paper had just moved from Tribeca, like a legendary Tribeca mm-hmm. office to like Koreatown area. So everyone, oh, there, okay. and then so, you know, I applied, whatever. I got the job. I moved over. You know, I could wear whatever I wanted. I could, you know, I could wear like, I was wearing, <laughs> I was wearing wild outfits to work, which you couldn't do at Rolling Stone. It was much more fashion oriented. That's, that's so oriented. mind boggling to me. Like, I, I feel like Rolling Stone has always been in my head, like very punk rock, do whatever you well, want. Well, maybe in like of. 1975, but it's certainly not in, yeah. not in the early 2000s, <laughs> yeah. that's for sure. I mean, they would put like U2 yeah. on the cover and Bob Dylan on the cover at least once per year and the Rolling Stones. Like, so that was, that was right. three covers a year already, like... <laughs> you know, for the, for these irrelevant musicians um, yeah, yeah, yeah. in the early 2000s. Um, so I went to work at Paper. Everyone in the office was complaining about how they had to com- come to Koreatown now because for years the office was in Tri- Tribeca. Right when I kind of got hired is when the office had just moved to Koreatown, um, which is a lot less interesting back then than it is today. Um, right. So I was like, this is great. I get to be like so much closer to downtown because I was in Rockefeller Center before that. And, you know, I, I worked there for two years. Um, it was cool. I got to do a lot more fashion stuff. And also during that time is when I went to Paris for the first time. I saved up. I had never gone on a vacation since I started working, period. So I'd never been anywhere. I never, I, I went to, had gone to London once, like right after high school. That's it. And so I saved up all my vacation days that I had. And I took mm-hmm. this trip over 4th of July so that gave me even more days off and I went to Paris for like two weeks and I stayed on the couch of a friend's cousin that I had never met because I was like I was very into fashion very into nightlife I really wanted to go I had like dreams of going so I went I didn't DJ anything I was just there on vacation and I I was just like blown away I was like obsessed with it from the first time I ever went and I came back to New York uh, and I got laid off it was 2008 oh I got laid off 
And all of my friends who were kind of like bigger, more established DJs, they were all going back to Paris like that following September for fashion week. And I really wanted to go, but I didn't want to book myself. I didn't want to be like, the, right. all these people were getting flown out. All these people were being put up in hotels, getting paid. I really, really, really wanted to be a part of it. I really wanted to go back to Paris, um, but I, I didn't want to pay my own way. It just felt corny kind of. Um, yeah, no, I know the feeling. Yeah. So I was, I just bit the bullet and I'm like, I'm just going to do it. I'm going to go, I'm going to make connections. I'm going to treat it like a vacation. And I went and I, I think I DJed one thing or two things, small things for probably, for probably no money just to like make connections. I met people and from after that, I don't think I missed a single Paris Fashion Week for the next decade. I was I was in like Whoa. yeah, like London, Milan, Paris. We would do Copenhagen, we would do Stockholm, Amsterdam Fashion Week. Basically from then on, like it was a it was a worthy investment, me just like biting the bullet and paying for my own flights and stuff like that. Um, to basically DJ for free because from then on, I, for the next 10 years basically, I was there, you know, four to six times a year, which was like a dream. I never traveled growing up ever, really. Um, and now I was able to like because I had to make this decision when I got laid off. To do I try to get like another real job or do I focus on this? And um, yeah, that's that's basically was the start of really taking DJing more seriously. Uh, not, I have to say, not the art of DJing very seriously, but just the business of DJing, taking it very seriously. Because uh, again, we, yeah. we were just, we were still just playing like the Clash and the Cure and the Smiths at that point. That's basically what we were playing. Um, yeah. Well, wait, who's we? So I'd say like me, um, the kids I DJed with at Rough Club, Miss Shapes. Okay. Um, who else was? Yeah, Jordan, Jordan Lee, um, all those people. Yeah, uh, who else was I DJing with regularly? Um, God, I can't remember. I, <laughs> well, who's who's booking? Like, like who's handling your booking? Because it sounds like you, this is kind a of- A lot of credit goes to Tommy Soleil, if you, okay. if you know Tommy. And if anyone out there probably knows Tommy, he was like a legendary downtown New York figure. And he worked for the Tribeca Grand and Soho Grand Hotels. And they had this- Oh. Oh, they shit. had this like a um, marketing arm called Grand Life, and they were the ones. They were like the only New York entities throwing other party throwing parties in other cities fashion weeks and they had a big budget because yeah. it was these two big popular hotels so they would fly us they were the ones usually covering all the flights and then you know putting us up maybe we got a giant airbnb maybe we got a hotel putting a bunch of us up and um kind of that was the flight in and once i was there i could book other gigs myself where those gigs wouldn't have to worry about flying me in um so that was right. like a lot, that was like our kind of <laughs> cash cow for a long time uh soho grand and tribeca grand hotels um so they were kind of the ones and really because of tommy um who was like old, you know, significantly older than us. He was like the creative director of these two hotels, and he kind of like adopted us all. Um, and we would throw these parties uh, all over all the fashion weeks. Um, yeah. And what's the fashion you're into at the time? Because you were saying that you were more and more into fashion. Like, yeah. Um, is this that, the Rick Owens era? Yeah, probably. I mean, I was into. Let me think. If, if, if I'm trying to like put the year. I mean, I remember one of my first uh, Paris fashion weeks. I bought my first Rick Owens leather jacket, which sent, which was like the pinnacle of fashion at the time. And for anyone, like, yeah, it was, it was a much much smaller brand back then. There was no New York store. There was one store in Palais Royale in Paris, and that was it. And going there was like going to Mecca. Um, and I remember I tried this jacket on. It was amazing. I, I probably went back every other day that I was in Paris and tried it on, like wondering if I should pull the trigger. Meanwhile, I had just been like kind of laid off, like probably the same year. And um, on, the, on my, the day of my flight home, I was like, you know what? I'm just going to go get it. And I went and I put it on like two credit cards, a debit card and like cash, like to buy this jacket. It was definitely <laughs> the most expensive thing I'd ever purchased. And I like wore the hell out of it. So yeah, I was very into Rick um, for many years. Comme Garçon, Junior Watanabe. Uh, that's kind of like this era. Um 
from there, I think that must have been like style zeitgeist era. So I was big on I yeah. was a big poster on style zeitgeist um, from the beginning. And that's how I know Eugene for many years and all those like old SC people. So I was definitely wearing all the Japanese brands. Um, Rick, Damir Doma, uh, Boris, oh, yeah, both of Doma. whom, both of whom also grew up skateboarding. Damir and Boris both grew up as skateboarders, and skateboarding yeah. was like a big influence on their design, early designs. Um, so Andy Mulemeister, um, what else yeah. was I wearing? You know, some brands, some some smaller brands uh, like Carpe Diem, stuff like that. Uh, Augusta, Carol Christian Pole, when I could afford it. Then it, then it got into Paul Harndon. I was wearing nothing but Paul Harndon for like eight years, basically. Uh, wow, yeah. these are all like real head yeah. brands. This isn't like oh i was into dior and you know dior like, dior own was very important in like um i'd say like the misshapes days but i could i yeah, could really yeah. couldn't afford much of it i I, could, I had like a pair of the dior jeans a few yep. tops um yeah stuff that you could find like on the super future market or whatever yeah because i feel like dior and helmet yeah helmet were Lane. like when i first moved to to new york that was the stuff that you could like that even other new yorkers were like wow this is really For sure expensive. and cloak as well cloak was an important one if you oh, remember yeah. cloak yeah with geller yeah. yeah um or in alexander Plokov, Plokov, yeah. yeah yeah that yeah that was like such a great era like I, looking back now like i feel like i was so unaware that i was in this like prime you know because you sure. were very connected because you had the internet but you didn't you know for me like i would check myspace yeah and see what was happening or i would check i don't know who was it was it like ultra girl you know mm-hmm. and some of the, yeah. the folks Sarah. who had blogs where it was like hey yeah th- these are the parties these are the things yeah there was there was a lot of websites like that there was a lot of documentation of these parties even gawker and gawker in the in yeah. the early 2000s was like a real powerhouse and they had yeah. they had um this column every friday called blue states lose that my friend joe used to write and he would take like the top five like craziest photos he could find from either the cobra snake or last night's party.com um yeah. both of which were like revelations when someone figured out like they should be documenting all these parties so like mark hunter and bronx like at all the party you knew you were at a good party if they were there and then you knew the next day you could go online and see photos of yourself which was like a big deal before instagram and stuff like that so they would so gawker would like find the top five like wackiest photos and kind of do a vice style do's and don'ts like kind of like a real like trolling caption on each one yeah and so i mean and all the entire new york media world was reading gawker gawker was extraordinarily powerful back then they were like the top you know i was working for rolling stone winter media and every time they got mentioned which was like every day it would be like a little bit of drama in the office um oh damn yeah so have you always kind of been this like renaissance man for lack of a better term because it sounds like a lot of these things you didn't have formal training right you didn't which is which is fine mm-hmm. i mean because you i didn't go to school either. yeah like i moved to new york mm-hmm. yeah and that was i was like oh i'm gonna take some time off and play music and you know here i am you know almost 38 years old and and never have gone to school and in a weird way it's great because i learned how to learn Mm -hmm. and i learned how to be a professional but in other ways like i mean in in like the darkest days of my life i would be like oh man like i'm gonna apply at this place but it says you know where'd you go to school i can't write new york and 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 hope they think nyu or something like you know but you were just figuring out your life on the go what'd your folks yeah i literally i think i was i was just always able to do that i mean i was delivering pizza in my hometown making good money because this was the pizza place everybody went to and this was the pizza place we grew up with 
So this was like yeah. the go-to pizza place. And I was delivering, like I had like the two prime shifts, like delivering Friday and Saturday night. Like I could make like, I mean, early 2000s, two or 300 bucks as like a 17 year old cash. Like that That's was like, huge. that was humongous. I felt like yeah. I was rich. Um, So yeah. And then from there, I don't know. I, I just kind of saw this path. Um, You know, yeah. I was living at home. That's I, very much not a path. I mean, uh, to, to call it out. Well, like yeah. it's, it's not, you just made it. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I was never a worker. I was never like a hard worker. Like I knew, like I never... I hated school from day one, like from preschool on, I hated school, even summer camp. (laughs) I hated summer camp because it felt like school. I never went to sleepaway camp. My parents knew I hated summer camp. Summer camp is school. Yeah, I I never was into it ever. Um, And so like, I don't know, even... My parents didn't go to school. So it was like, for them, it was important that I go to school. And even yep. before like SATs, they knew like, okay, he doesn't care at all. Like there's no way, there's no point in like SAT prep or anything like that. I don't even know what yeah. I got on my SATs. I don't think I did one minute of prep. I, I I couldn't even tell you what I got in the, I don't even remember taking them. I was never applying to schools when other people were applying. I just like had no interest. It wasn't even a concern. Um, yeah. Yeah. And you know, I think like living in, in Manhattan with zero degree, it will get you way further than living anywhere else with like a master's degree. Uh, that's, yes. Uh, it's an, a very astute point. Like I, I totally agree with that. Because it, it also, I mean, but you still have to do stuff. Because I have a bunch of friends who, you know, they went to MIT or mm-hmm. they went to Harvard or they went to wherever. And they're kind of just waiting for someone to recognize mm-hmm. them. And in a sense where it's like, well, I applied. And it's like, well, cool. Have you talked to anyone? Have you done right. anything? Do you actually care about this? Like, are you going out? Are you meeting people? Are you like existing? And, you know, and they're like, no, I mean, I went to the school. I reached out to the placement program and hopefully right. and it's just like what the fuck man like you know you, you have to exist and I mean hustle is such a fucking tacky term but yeah it's it was what you had to do Hello, is this thing on? Alright, whatever. We gotta get new gear. We gotta get some new threads, whatever you want to call it. Check out the folks at Standard and Strange. Not only do they sponsor this podcast, hello, but they're one of my favorite stores on earth with locations in New York, Oakland, and Santa Fe, with incredible brands like Real McCoys, Orslo, Freno, and more. Look, they even got brands I don't even know how to pronounce, but they're cool, and so are you. You gonna get some quality gear from a quality crew? Does that sound cheesy? I don't even care because their clothes and team are so good! So visit standardandstrange.com or check them out in person at one of their amazing stores. That's standardandstrange.com. And now, back to the show. Mm-hmm. Um, so you do this for like a good decade. Basically, yeah. Um, I, I didn't know where it was going to lead me because it was very aware. It, I was very aware that as a DJ, there were certain years where you make less money than the year before and you weren't necessarily like, you don't get a raise every year. I mean, this is the same right. for anyone who works for themselves, I guess. But it, it was yeah. very clear. I remember when we were, I was like 25 years, I don't know, how old was I? I was in my early 20s, I guess. We were doing Rough Club and the two guys who like organized Rough Club, uh, Denny and Spencer, were like both 30. And I was like, if I'm 30 and I'm still doing this, put a bullet in my head. <laughs> I was like, there's no way I'm still going to be doing this at there. And meanwhile, like 30 came and went and I was definitely still doing it. Um, so yeah, I didn't know what, what the plan was. Um, and I don't know how far you want to skip ahead, but, but, um, basically the last thing I did in nightlife was I helped my friend Angelo open a club 
or Tau group, which was Fleur Room. It's huge. Yeah. So he had to kind of talk, Angelo kind of had to talk me into it because I would be DJing, but I would also be booking other DJs and like working the door and planning events and doing all sorts of stuff. And he, you know, kind of talked me into like figuring, be like, this could be like a next step instead of like DJing, like some of your colleagues who are still like approaching late 30s, still doing this. You might mm-hmm. want to like look for something out, like, you know, kind of look to see what the future would be. So um, we started doing that like exactly one year before COVID. And oh, geez. yeah, and then um, COVID hit and it closed. Luckily, I mean, I don't know if this is skipping ahead, ahead too much, but um, no, you're fine. Kind of what we what uh, we haven't talked about is the watches. Like I started collecting watches. In, yeah, because when did watches yeah, come so, in? So um, basically through Style Zeitgeist, uh, there was a guy on okay. there who I would chat with um, who was very into vintage Rolex and he would talk about it with me and show it to me and I didn't know much about it. And, you know, I kind of like, you know, I kind of got interested. I started researching Rolex forums, vintage Rolex forums etc you know instagram and um i was like okay maybe i want to like look into getting one they were still you can get a g you can get a gmt for you know like a 60 gmt for under 10 grand um yeah so eventually i bought my first one after like so much research i did like a ridiculous amount of research um where i felt like i was a nearly an expert on like the 60s gmt 60s and 70s like reference 1675 if anyone knows what that is um yeah yeah I, so i did enough research where i like didn't need anyone to tell me if this watch was good or not like i was able to determine it like just from my own obsessive research and i bought one and that started like my obsession and um you know just tons and tons and tons of research and i didn't even see myself buying more than one um but i would kind of stumble upon kind of really good deals on watches that i didn't necessarily want but i knew somebody would want so you know i i I, like Mm -hmm dipped my toes until kind of like maybe attempted to buy and sell. And then I also stumbled upon a deal where this retiring watchmaker was selling all his parts, like all his Rolex parts. Cause he was like a, he was like an, he was like a certified Rolex watchmaker, like an independent watchmaker, but had a Rolex parts account and he was retiring. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is almost like a legend. Like the story itself is like the dream you hear about, like, Oh, I discovered like this retiring watchmaker. And he had like, you know, the dream is you find one who has like 2000 Patek dials or something. In, in yeah. reality, I, I found this guy. He had a bunch of like 80s and 90s Rolex stuff that had some value. I offered him 10 grand. Uh, he said, okay. Like the, Wait, Where'd you get 10 grand? Basically, I knew, I, I basically had a buyer lined up before I even, so I had oh, all the photos. Okay. I had like a bunch of photos. Um, I mean, I was able to, at that point, like I was able to, you know, it, it was like a guaranteed um, yeah, return. Yeah, there was yeah. no fail. There was no way for this to go wrong. So I was able to, yeah. you know, front whatever it was 10 grand. Um, and then like the same week, I think I sold it for 35 grand. Um, yeah, this Whoa. is way before I'm like even a dealer or anything like that. I just saw, I mean, it was very clear to me that in these photos, there were dials that sold for $2,000. There were bezels that sold for, you know, a few thousand dollars. What's funny is um, I went to go pick all the stuff up. I brought two like international travel full suitcases, like empty on an Amtrak. And I went <laughs> and I went to go pick up all these parts. And the guy told me, he's like, you know what? If you got, if, if, I, if I had like met you a year earlier, I had like an entire set, like a styrofoam large 7-Eleven cup, like a slushy cup filled with old inserts from like the 50s, 60s, 70s that I would take off people's watches and throw them into this cup and put the new inserts on and give the watches back. I was like, but you know what? I gave it to someone a year ago. I was like, oh my God, that could have been a (sighs) half a million dollar cup. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Holy shit. So, you know, I would- Uh, How'd you find this guy? I mean, just- I found him on Rolex forums. It was a guy. Okay. It's really funny. He posted in the complete, to to sell something on Rolex forums, I think you have to pay 50 bucks a year. You have to have a certain amount of posts. There's a special classified section. This guy went into just the general Rolex forum 
area, put this message against the rules in the wrong section. And he's like, I'm, I literally was like, I'm a retiring watchmaker. I want to sell everything I have. Here's my phone number. And then like, I saw it. I copied on the phone number. A second later, it was deleted by moderators. I mean, it was in the complete, it was like posting the wrong thing in the wrong spot against the rules. He hadn't paid to be able to post. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I call this guy <laughs> and, it, you know, I was able to Google him, Google the phone number even, and it, it all checked out. Um, He wanted an offer. Uh, I wasn't sure what to offer. I didn't want to. I mean, I, I really didn't know the photos he were able to see, he sent me were not great. So I wasn't like a hundred at that point. I wasn't a hundred percent sure until I was able to get better photos. Uh, yeah. And we did the deal. I gave him exactly what he asked for. And then, you know, he had no interest in breaking the parts down and selling them individually posted yeah. in Rolex forms. And he, I found him. Um, and then, yeah, I sold, sold all those parts and, you know, it was, and it, even it wasn't until like two years after that, that I even consider calling myself a dealer. Um, but you know, I would kind of stumble upon these deals and, you know, I right. remember like in 2004, five or 2006 some store was closing down and they sold apc jeans and they had all like the you know the cure the new standard jeans and because they were closing they were selling them for 20 dollars each i went in and i bought all this was like apc in the early 2000s like spending 160 dollars on jeans was like insane and like everyone yeah, was looking for a way to get these jeans for cheaper and they were selling i mean they were small sizes these were not sizes i was going to be able to fit into they were like size 25 right. 26 27 28 and i was like i'll buy them all and i bought them and i put them on super future i think they were gone in like a day so i was i was always like finding kind of deals like this um and then i would just yeah i would just keep finding stuff like this i was just hunting all day just like sitting on the internet like on the message boards on the facebook groups kind of finding these deals on watches and in the meantime i'm learning one reference at a time as much as i can you know 1670 you know you learn them one at a time because you know people now ask me like well, how do you learn about this how do you become a dealer i tell them study watches for five years study watches like give yourself like a university education on watches and then you're going to be able to make money whether you like it or not because like i'm constantly falling into these deals now especially but even back then as like a total amateur i was you know knowing what i knew about 10 different references i was able to find like incredible deals and like you said like the, the whole hustle culture thing i think is pathetic i also think like i have this bad habit of like turning my hobbies into jobs which i know like sometimes works out how is that a bad habit i, mean, I don't know i just think it's like why why do you have to monetize everything why does everything have to be like a money-making opportunity but i have like well because you have to live yeah, I guess, no the, unfortunately I mean, yes i guess there's so. your defense yeah um <laughs> but yeah so basically i was doing that for a while i stumbled into then i stumbled into like a huge deal where like i needed like money because i basically made this deal to buy this watch with no money but i knew it was such an insane deal that anyone would give me the money and the first person i spoke to who was cameron at craft and taylor was like go get this yeah. watch which i had to get on a plane to go get and we will wire the money like that's what a sure thing that it was a gold patek nautilus 3700 from like the 80s it was like the original nautilus in gold yeah it yeah. was so fully linked that i could basically slide the entire thing off without unbuckling the clasp that's how like fully linked this thing was it had the it had like the lacquer box not the cork box but lacquer box um yeah and it was just like a create it was, it was just like a facebook post with like the worst photos ever um and i literally you know this is i was still doing nightlife stuff at this time and i found this watch and i made it i basically made a deal to get this watch without having any money and then the first guy i called which who was cameron was like yeah we'll wire the money go get it and that's what happened that's yeah nuts. and then cameron was basically like you know we can do this we can keep doing this deal it doesn't have to be for like museum worthy watches we could do this for smaller watches too as long as there's enough profit margin for everybody then we can you find them we'll sell them we'll pay for them etc so that's kind of like how it started and i was doing that casually for a while and and then COVID hit. I was like, I guess I'm just going to do this full time because watches, vintage watches, really went crazy after COVID. And it and it was it wasn't until like um, Adam Golden 
at meant to watch it was like I, I i didn't call myself a dealer and he goes no you're a dealer now whether you like it or not i was like okay so i guess i'm a dealer and that's how that happened yeah because you're because then the other thing that starts to happen through here and this is what i'm sure a lot of people want to hear about is the tiktok yeah. starts and like i i've i mean i've told you this privately but like i'll just say it publicly like you're the way that you do tiktok like i let, let me just say as an aside i think watch dealing in most cases it can look really glamorous mm-hmm. or it looks extremely slimy yes it looks like some sort of thing where it's like, ah, I'm here just defrauding and deceiving individuals. And with my wit and intelligence, I win the game. Yes. And, and all these people are fools. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and with the TikTok that you were doing, you know, first off, I would I will go on record like you definitely created like watch talk for lack of a better term. I don't know what the fuck people are calling yeah, it. Yeah, well, we call fine. watch talk basically. Yeah. And you, you know, you were doing the kind of man on the street stuff, mm-hmm. but then you started teaching people yeah. about things and then documenting you, you know, buying watches, flipping watches. Mm-hmm. But the thing that was really interesting is even then like you know you have a bunch of videos like hey here's a quick flip someone wants this Mm -hmm. watch they want to move it at this like there's no hiding and it's and because of i don't know maybe it's just because of how you talk to people or what like it does it's not slimy it's not it looks like i mean in a weird way it looks like like fucking the best tv show like thank you it looks like pawn stars like and i say that because i think i will go on record and i've said this before too pawn stars is by far one of the greatest tv shows of all time like i swear to god it's just a fucking mess but so you started doing this and and it's been incredible just like watch, you know, and I, for folks that are listening, Mike and I were in New York and we were walking around and people kept coming up to us and being like, oh, dude, are, are you are you the guy from TikTok? Are you Mike? Or like random people were like, yo, man, I love your videos. Like we were just sitting at the, the cafe mm-hmm. and just like that woman come. I mean, mm-hmm. like, so it's it just exploded. And, you know, the question I want to ask was like, what made you be like, hey, why don't I start letting people in on the things that every other dealer hides? So basically, I mean, I've only, what's funny is I've only been doing this TikTok since May and it still feels funny to talk about it because it, it does, I, May? yeah, since May of this year, May 20 or May 2022 Jeez. rather. Um, and it does still does feel weird telling people about TikTok because I'm like, gotta be the oldest person on TikTok. I'm like an, <laughs> I'm like an old man in like a young person's app. Um, <laughs> But yeah, I started it because I mean, I had a lot of my friend, you know, my friend Isaac was big on TikTok or is big on TikTok and he was like pushing me to do stuff. My friends, yeah, Isaac, yeah, likes. my friend Bailey and yeah. Nolan uh, were doing a lot of stuff like fashion watcher related stuff on TikTok. Um, and I just, I was like, I came up with an idea and it was, I'm going to ask people on the street about their watches. And the first one I did, the very first one I did, like kind of popped off like a couple hundred thousand views where like all of these other, like Isaac and all of them were like, this is actually, those are actually crazy numbers. Don't get used to this. Like, this is like how TikTok gets you. They reward you at the very beginning. And then they kind of like slowly take all your views away, which is true. But um, yeah, I was doing that. And within like, oh, I wasn't planning on ever putting myself on camera. Um, mm-hmm. I was just interviewing people on the streets and with in a week, people were like, well, how do I buy vintage watches? How do I know vintage watches are good? Which dealer should I talk to? I was like, oh God, I'm going to have to tell them I'm a dealer because I really wanted, I wasn't going to do anything dealer related because I wanted it to be like completely unbiased, you know, thoughts and opinions about watches, buying watches, collecting watches. So I had to get behind the, I had to get in front of the camera and be like, okay, I'm a dealer. This is how this works. Like, this is what we do. You don't have to buy. I never give people the, I don't care if they buy from me or not. Like I never give people the hard sell. I think even my biggest critics will 
not accuse me of like being like, yeah, you have to come to us to buy watches. We're the best. I never like I'm constantly recommending other dealers, other places to find watches besides just us craft and tailored. Um, so yeah, I just started doing these videos and they were doing good. There wasn't much watch content on TikTok. So it kind of just like popped off from there. And you know, if you post every single day like I do and you know, keep making content, eventually it's gonna kind of do well. And it's opened like an insane, an insane market that like was relatively untapped. Like I've had dealers, you know, like real dealers call me and be like, this is TikTok thing. Like, this is really doing anything for business. And I tell them like, you wouldn't believe me if I told you. Like if you saw like the number of, within within two weeks, someone had sent me a message being like, hey Mike, uh, me and my dad, my grandfather collect watches. We had these like 50 watches that like, they're all gr- they're all like collector grade, which they were uh, watches, no crap. Um, do you want to come take them and sell them? And he gave my address. I went to his apartment in Chelsea and he had like a mate, like 10, 10 GMTs, like a bunch of subs, like Minerva's, like Ben Russ, all this stuff. I'm like, this is amazing. I've been doing this for two weeks and this like the potential profit here is pretty like, you know, pretty wild. And that was so early mm-hmm. on. Um, And what was in this gentleman's collection that he wasn't selling was also like Paul Newman's Stone Dials, James Bond sub. Like, cre- I'm like, so I'm like, yeah, if we do well with this stuff, maybe we can eventually get that stuff anyway. um, And then people messaging me to buy watches, like the watches sell before we can even get them onto the website. Um, I think one of the reasons I don't put, I'm not like a hard sell is because these watches, the watches we buy and sell, they sell themselves. There's no like real marketing necessary. Like if you're only buying and selling collector grade watches, the collectors are going to consume them. Um, So really the hard part is this is for, I'd say for all dealers, the hard part is finding and buying the watches. And TikTok has like kind of made that easier because now kids are messaging me. I have this Patek Philippe, my grandfather left me. Like, is it, is it worth anything? Like, can we sell it? Like, can you, can you consign it? So that is by far the best part. That's the reason where there, why there hasn't, there hasn't been any sponsored content on my, on my page at all. I mean, companies have approached me like, you know, eBay, um, right. Who else? Bezel, uh, Real Real, and I've given them cr- kind of like crazy numbers for a sponsored post because I don't need that on my page. Like I think people trust me enough to come to me like with their watches, and that's like the best thing that could ever happen. Like I don't need the you know x amount of money that Warner Brothers offered for a sponsored post. Like I, like the the prices I'm quoting for sponsored posts are like probably what people with five million followers should be quoting. But um yeah, I mean the, be- the really the best part of the entire situation is people coming to you with their watches because that's the hardest part of the whole business is finding the watches. Yeah, I mean, for years, so many people have always been like, oh man, because of Hoodinky or because of this, there's no more like desk drawer funds. Right. Like it's over. And um, I think TikTok has brought out a whole new generation of people who are finding those things. Like even then, like, you know, there's, there's a guy in St. Louis whom, you know, I, I used to like teach him guitar and stuff okay. back in the day. And since I moved back here, we, we met and hung out. I, t- I told you this a little bit briefly. And he was like, oh, yeah, he's like, you're into watches, right? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, yeah, my dad collects watches. He's like, he only collects like Dutch stuff. And I was like, oh, like Dutch? Mm. I'm thinking, I'm like, Renfeld? Is it like, what, right. you know? And he's like, no, he's like something called like Paydick. And I was like, Paydick, Paydick. And I was like, what do you, I was like, oh, Patek? And he was like, yeah. And his dad's got like 5970. Wow. His dad's got like, I mean, all these just incredible watches. And, you know, his family does like art dealing mm-hmm. and stuff. So like he's been around this stuff. And even then, like I, I met his dad totally disconnected mm. from the watch stuff. And I think that's the thing is like, there's so many folks out there to where they just had the watch because it was a watch that they bought. Totally. Like, oh, it was a nice watch or my wife bought it. They, so many people have not, you know, in, in, out of respect, I, as I assume, have not stayed abreast of just like the craze and all these mm-hmm. people going and learning about it. And that's like just a random dude, you know I mean? So there's still tons of stuff out there. 
Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I mean, I agree with you. Like I think before TikTok, I would have said the same thing where there's so few barn finds, there's so few original owner watches left that are kind of untouched. Now, I mean, really like amazing stuff comes out of the woodwork every day. Um, and I mean, that's even, and that's a, you know, this, and also the stuff sells very quickly. Like if I pick up a bunch of watches and put them on my TikTok, generally they're sold before there's even, there even a chance to be properly photographed because I think people trust me enough to know that I'm not going to be like peddling crap. And also, yeah. And also we see, you know, obviously we stand behind all the watches we sell. Yeah, but I think that's that's the biggest thing is because I think your TikTok and you as an individual, you've you've documented so many things that you don't take mm-hmm. and so many things like even then like, you know, on some of your stuff, which I'm sure people will see after this or, or I've already seen where someone's trying to sell you a watch or someone in the diamond district or whatever. And you're like, no, you're like these. I can't use these parts. Right. Or I can't use this. Like people have gotten to understand that you're only buying stuff that doesn't require like authentication or replacing the hands mm-hmm. or changing a you know, and so that, yeah, there's, there's, I imagine it's got to help reduce the amount of questioning you get before each watch is sold. Yeah. Also, I mean, I, you know, I post some content from the Diamond District and people are like, how come I can't just go to the Diamond District and get these same deals you're getting? Well, I say, because, you know, what you don't see is the fact that a lot of these people are offering me a hundred watches and one out of the hundred is good. One is all correct. One doesn't have its serial number filed off. One like oh is God. not reloomed. One is unpolished. Like only one out of a hundred are we take it and they are happy to sell the other 99 to whatever schmuck walks in off the street. Um, yeah, because I, I was going to say why everyone, you know, if it, it feels like it, it's common in the lexicon or whatever for people wanting a watch that the dial is untouched, mm-hmm. it's not reloomed, mm-hmm. the hands aren't replaced, you know, it's not polished. Yet still, a lot of these places that are selling, you know, vintage Rolex, for mm-hmm. example, it's all renewed. It's all over polished. It's yes. all replacement everything. Why have this? Where's the disconnect? Um, I think people might say, hey, I want a vintage watch. I'm going to go buy it. This guy's in business. He has a booth. He must be trustworthy. Um, and they yeah. don't, they just simply don't do the research. I mean, it's a lot starting from zero. It's a lot to learn, which is why I always advise going to like a legitimate vintage dealer, like a vetted vintage dealer. And I literally every so often I'll make a video where I list 20 dealers besides myself that I completely vouch for. So when people ask, where do I buy vintage watches? Like, how do I know I'm not getting screwed? Go to one of these 20 people I just listed and go to their websites or their Instagram and they're trustworthy and they're going to, if there's anything replaced, it'll be disclosed at least. And if, if yeah. something goes wrong, they'll be there to, you know, take it back or fix it. Um, I think a lot of people, the other thing I've learned, especially with TikTok, because it's a younger demographic is that like, they want the cheapest thing possible. They want like, yeah. I cannot tell you every question. Rolex for under a thousand. Yeah, what's or the under cheapest 500? Rolex I can get? What's the cheapest Cartier I can get? I'm like, that's the worst way to do this. You are like nearly guaranteed to be screwed if you if that's the way you you plan on doing this. Um, so people are just think they you know they find a cheap deal. And the other thing is, I think maybe someone will buy a watch from who knows either a mom and pop jewelry store who can be just as slimy as anybody else. These mom and pop shops. Like if someone says something's come from a mom and pop shop or their local mom and pop. Shop, Shop has verified their watch is authentic. That is a big red flag for me because I don't trust any of those shops. Um, many times they're they're <laughs> lying by omission or they know or they pretend they don't know. Um, there's uh, you know only a handful of people. I mean I don't know in the entire world I don't know what the numbers 250 people that can truly kind of like I trust to authenticate something. Um, and it's not like someone at a mom and pop shop like in the middle of nowhere. I mean yes somebody might walk into that shop trade them like a really valuable untouched watch. But generally what you're finding in places 
like this, I find are play styles, aftermarket stuff, blah, blah, blah. And they probably are not going to disclose it. They're just going to sell it. Anyway, what I was getting to is somebody might buy a watch from a place like that, walk walk around wearing it for 10 years, recommend Mm -hmm. this store to everyone who asks. Then it comes time to sell it. They want to sell it to us. You know, we're not in the in the business of telling people their watches are no good. But if you're trying to sell it to us and negotiate and you're wondering why that not only do we not have an offer, but we're not interested in buying it at any price, we're going to tell you why that all this stuff is incorrect. And you didn't know that until just now. And you've been referring your friends and family to the same seller for the last 10 years. Um, and I think that's how oh this, you know, perpetuates. Yeah, that's a good point. It makes me wonder, like all the people who bought like messed up Bamford's over mm-hmm. the years and they think it's worth like I had a friend he had managed he managed a bunch of DJs actually mm. he managed um condolences to him um, d- yeah he managed Da Rude at one okay. point and um he was super into he got into he's like Jeremy's like I want to get a Rolex and I'm like okay cool and I was like I knew enough to still be an idiot but I you know I was like kind of dangerous and so um he was like I want to get a Milgauss he's like but I want to get the blacked out mm-hmm so mm-hmm. he bought a Bamford Milgauss. This is before George Bamford, you know, a- a shut down his like mm-hmm. customizing program and all that. I mean, this is a-, a long time ago. And he so he got this Milgauss and he got it all blacked out. And uh, in my in my opinion, I mean, he's probably going to listen to this and message me and cuss me out. But like, it's the ugliest watch I've ever mm-hmm. seen because uh, the Milgauss is already super big. Yeah, I, know, I already like, find the, the regular factory Milgauss extremely ugly. Yeah, it's a, it's a trash watch. He wanted the lightning bolt because he thought it was cool. But here's the other thing. He went and he was in um, on tour with one of his mm-hmm. DJs and he got the hands all replaced. And then again, he went and got someone where they like wrote some sort of saying on the okay. dock. So this guy basically has the brick watch before yeah. brick watches. And it's in, in now, you know, he's like, Jeremy, he's like, I want to sell this watch. This is literally less than two mm-hmm. weeks ago. He's like, do you remember that blacked out? You know, it's a Bamford. It's super good. He's like, Bamford's like huge right now. And he's like, how much do you think this thing is worth? And I was like, did anyone own it? Like, mm-hmm. is can you like is it cool it was like this watch is not, it's it's yeah. trash i mean the, who wants a pvd milgauss that has replacement hands and talks about mm-hmm. like a dj's inside joke on the dot right. like it's it's just it's over mm-hmm. and he was infuriated um he's like this thing's worth like maybe a hundred thousand oh yeah this and happens like, all the time oh, all the time <laughs> People have no idea. Even even yeah, even was, with legitimate watches, I mean, people think that the price on they see on Chrono Twenty Four is the price that they're going to get. That's never going to happen. Um, yeah. And you know, people people will come to me with a watch that we're not interested in and be like, okay, here's this here's this Datejust six thousand dollars for a vintage Datejust. I'll be like, no, sorry, not interested. And they're almost surprised that I'm completely not interested. They're like, aren't you going to like negotiate? I say, no, I don't want this watch, period. And then, then they drop the price, 5000 4000 I'm like, I have no interest in this watch at any price. Like, I'm, I do not want to touch this watch. And they like have, no, and I think only then is there some kind of awakening that wherever they got it from is maybe the wrong place. Oh man, God, that's got to be awkward. One thing I do want to pick at is you mentioned Cartier earlier. Yes. And I think you and a handful of other people have been behind this like Cartier boom. Mm-hmm. Um, what what happened? Like, why was Cartier slept on so much and why is it so hot right now? Um, I think, I mean, there's a lot of reasons. First of all, people were definitely hyping it up bef- before me, like some of these like real psychotic Cartier collectors on Instagram, definitely before me. So I want to give like those people credit, like George Kramer, Roni Madvani, Eric Koo, like these people well, well, well before yeah, me. Yeah, okay. Um, I think that people are tired of big watches. I think anyone paying attention are seeing the... Um, 
you know, big watches drop in rel- like relevance. And, you know, people are also sick mm-hmm. of maybe Rolex, modern Rolex, like the games you need to play to get these watches. And they see that these like historic, beautiful, iconic watches from Cartier are relatively available compared to a Nautilus. Um, and I think people just started sure. paying attention to them. And, you know, they're also extraordinarily collectible. And when you, I tell I tell people with Cartier, there's a lot of treasure hunting involved that, does, that like doesn't really exist with Rolex. Um, you're not going to find a, a Rolex in a totally new style that no one's ever seen before it's not going to happen but with cartier it's mm. you can walk into a, a random jewelry shop and maybe they'll have some piece from 1960s london cartier that there's no photographs of on the internet that nothing is ever you know that no one even really knew existed because so much stuff was coming out in such small quantities in the 50s 60s 70s that there's a lot of stuff like undiscovered still and it's not like rolex where you can look at the serial and figure out what year it is it doesn't really work like that so mm. uh you know I, and also someone again in like a small drill jewelry shop some somewhere might get you know a tank in like if someone brings in a gold tank they're okay this is a gold cartier tank it's worth seven thousand dollars that's what it's for sale for but then i, I you know I, I someone walks in and says okay i know that this is like a 1940s cartier it says france on the dial it's actually a tank normal and it's worth 60 grand like that's not gonna happen really with rolex anymore we're beyond the point where i mean with rolex uh, someone who knows nothing about Rolex can Google what's on the dial or the engravings and figure it out. There's almost no way to right. do that with Cartier. So there's like this big treasure hunting aspect. Um, and like, you know, new stuff is kind of being discovered all the time. You know, there's watches that they maybe made five of in the seventies and, you know, tracking down this information. There's so little, there's no databases of serial numbers. From, so just from a collector standpoint, that I think is highly interesting. Um, you know, it's, it's also a thing where it's, it's like jewel, it's more, it's closer to jewelry. I mean, you know, it's a, it's a brand where the movement are not super important. It's really the aesthetics, the design, the shapes. Like that's the important part. Yeah. And I think it's kind of a response to like people getting ultra obsessed with movements and complications. And this is like in chronographs and this is like the the polar opposite of that. Yeah. I also think they're just they're just very beautiful and I, I and you know they're still obtainable for fairly reasonable prices. And you know, I just think it's very interesting. And you know, they have this this NSO program, new special order, where you can, you know, certain people are invited to kind of design their own Cartier, their own special dial essentially a one of one and that's not that's nothing not something you really see with like rolex or uh, definitely not rolex but you know watch brands used to do that back in the day but really you don't really see that anymore so that's another really like interesting thing that collectors are into yeah that's a good point i mean i'm not gonna lie i mean i've talked to other people about cartier in the past and i don't think anyone's put it the way you did in terms of the treasure hunting aspect because yeah like you're right there's a lot of stuff where it's it's somewhat easy to find the history of the the lineage of the reference do you think we're in this like post-movement world of like watch collecting because I feel like people care less and less about what, oh what yeah, caliber I mean, is this and what other than I think the majority it. of collectors never really cared about that um, maybe they want to say their watch has an in-house movement but in the end like do they really really care about that um, yeah I mean I was never obsessed with movements to begin with I think you're going to have you're always going to have the independent watchmakers where that's the most important thing yeah. you know Vutalainen FP Jorn you know stuff like that where that is paramount but when, when you look at something like Cartier it's it's really like you're looking for a beautiful object object that you can wear um, and it keeps time well great you know the movements are still historic like you have the EWC movements the Le Coultre movements I mean they're still like Piquet movements they're still important movements they're just not necessarily in-house um, and you know I think most collectors don't tr- truly don't really care about that they might say they do but you know I, I can't imagine that they truly care if like you know I mean for many years Rolexes didn't use the Zenith movements or Valjoux or whatever yeah yeah um, so yeah I mean I think it's like you know, it's the thing you're going to see the least of in, on your watch is the movement. So I'd rather have a beautiful Tanks and Trey or Cartier crash.
flash on my wrist than, you know, some, you know, a split second chronograph. Though I do find those interesting too. Yeah. Is that still the grail? Like a, like a crash or something? Um, I used to think the crash, I mean, I still think the crash is kind of like overexposed. It's the ultimate like mood board watch. Like all these, like all <laughs> these like Instagram accounts that they just like steal other people's content and just like, you know, just like, you'll, you know, you swipe through. And it's like, oh, it's a yeah. 60s 9-11. Then it's like a bronze stereo. And then it's like a Cartier crash. And it's like, it's a, it's a watch. You, <laughs> like that's how people know it. People don't know about watches asking about the Cartier crash. Um, and then I got to wear one for two weeks. Um, and I was like, damn, oh. damn. I, yeah, I picked it up for another a dealer colleague from one of his clients. He just needed me to hold on to it for, he's like, you could wear it too. I don't care. So I was wearing this thing. It was the 1991 version, which is actually a little bit smaller than the one they technically make today. And I was just wearing it around. And my God, I was like, this thing is amazing. And they think they've only probably made less than ever, ever. Every version of the crash, probably less than a thousand total. So it truly is limited. I mean, how many, I mean, Nautiluses, they've probably made like, God, a hundred, uh, over a hundred thousand, you know, I mean, less than a At thousand. Least. Yeah, yeah. I mean, less than a thousand Cartier crashes. And even today, it's probably easier to get a Tiffany signed Patek than it is to get a Cartier crash. I think they release one watch per month. And obviously it's not just going to the case to see who can get to it first. It's going to like extraordinarily good clients probably. I mean, I would love to get my hands on one today, uh, someday, but you know, for retail. So, you know, I mean, yeah, I promote. Yeah, because what is retail on a crash I Maybe now? I mean, it's, it's no, not it's not ton, probably like, right? uh, I don't know, maybe low 30,000 range, which is still a lot of money, but I mean, <laughs> it's get, it's yeah. it's worth 200,000. Um, yeah, That's so yeah, nice. I mean, I would love to be able to get one one day. You know, I promote Cartier a lot. I've probably given them a lot of free yeah. press. Um, I just yeah. did something for, I did uh, a video for Hype Beast where it's a video just about the cardiac crash where they interviewed me. Um, you know, I talk about it a lot. I, it would be nice to, to to get one one day. Um, do you, Are there any like watch brands that, you know, like maybe are worthless to others, but mean everything to you? Um, I don't know about that. Uh, I don't know. You, do you mean just underappreciated brands or, or what do you mean? Yeah, I mean, I guess like, because like for me, I mean, I've always loved vintage Seikos okay. and a lot of people are like that's you know it's it's not really the first thing someone mentions when they collect right. vintage watches but i liked it because it was easy to get it was easy to understand and even to this day i mean i have maybe 20 wow. vintage seikos that maybe are worth i don't know 30 percent more right. than what i paid for but it's not like i don't have anything that's oh man this is like the equivalent mm-hmm. of a crash or this is the you know um but that's like always been my just one of my favorite things even though they're not right yeah i mean there's three <laughs> brands like that, that are like galet is one universal genève is one oh, yeah but, you know collectors love this yeah. stuff for sure. So it's not like someone's giving it away. But yeah, there's definitely smaller brands right. that I like for sure. Um, yeah, I know like a lot of people got into what uh, Enicar. Yeah, Enicar is cool for sure. Point. Like Wittenauer is cool. Like there's a lot yeah. of like really Minerva. There's a lot of cool old brands that I like. Yeah, the sure. fact that like I remember seeing old Movado Dr. Dials mm. with yeah, the Movado, little squiggle. Old Movado is amazing. And now, yeah, I mean, they're, I, I remember seeing them as like two, three grand mm-hmm. for one. I was like, man, that's a lot for a Movado. And now like that same watch, they're going for like 20. Yeah, like a, you like know, a super sub C or something could go for close to 20. Yeah. yeah I mean, there's, there's, really really rad stuff in Movado's yeah, history it's it's definitely pretty crazy um one of the other things i wanted to definitely chat with you about is like as you kind of evolve in this tiktok world like has anyone like approached you to do like a tv show or do, do you see any sort of like maybe longer term video um, series that you're gonna do or no actually not really because really? there are people that put your your videos on youtube like stitch all stitched together yeah, uh, yeah, I I believe it. I mean, people say you should do YouTube. I don't know. It's like hard enough for me to get to get like get myself to do one TikTok video, which doesn't require much editing every day. Then if I have to worry about YouTube, God, and start start from scratch. I just there's just so much watch content on YouTube already. 
that there's barely yeah. relatively barely any but it's not TikTok. entertaining i'm gonna push back like because because i mean i love i think people like teddy baldessari and all that stuff it's really cool it's very informative but it's also um there's it's not deep mm-hmm. and i mean that's no shots to him like I, i'm not as entertained maybe that's mm-hmm. a better way to say it like watching your stuff i have to delete tiktok from my phone at times because an hour and a half goes by That's and fine. I've just watched all these, you know, videos of what's on people's wrist or you, you know, your clapbacks at weird people mm-hmm. DMing you. Yeah. I mean, it's there there's much more entertaining with that. And so I mean just as a fan, I'd love to see like the day in the life TV show. But well, if anyone's out there from Netflix or HBO, let me know. <laughs> so a lot of times on your on your TikToks, you're responding to people who ask you the same questions over and over again. Mm-hmm. What are the questions that people are always asking you that you can uh, answer here to kind of reduce the influx of DMs? Okay, probably my most frequently asked question, and this is coming from people who I'm assuming are also following like Gary V and Joe Rogan. She's like, how do I flip watches? Like, how do I get into this? Like, like I want to I want to do this. I have a thousand dollars to start. Um, I tell everybody study watches like you're at like you're in college study them until you are an expert and then once you're an expert you won't be able to stop yourself from making money because it, it should come very naturally if you were trying to get into this and flip it like nike or supreme or pokemon cards you are going to get burned <laughs> and i will enjoy watching it <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah there's no catalog raison of any watches yeah. are there no basically not yeah. um yeah i, I mean th- i mean that i mean listen i'm not saying it's impossible i did it someone else can do it but if you're trying to do it with no knowledge and no like love of watches just because you see this on tiktok and it looks easy like i i, I would love for you to try um <laughs> I mean, I, I know dudes who are just like, who know a decent about, about watches and mm-hmm. just, you know, are just kind of like inept on social media who like, I see struggling. Like we, you know, we were in the Miami beach antique show, which is a huge yeah. show, not just for watches, but for, you know, all different like antiques in the Miami beach convention center. It's like a half a million square feet or something. And there's all the big dealer, all the big watch dealers are there. And someone else was like, man, like kind of a, like a, it's a rough year for like vintage selling vintage watches, huh? And we're like, no, not for like, this has got to be like, we can't even keep stock in. Like maybe if you are like only posting like ultra high like quality photos with overly verbose captions that only appear to like <laughs> appeal to boomers on your TikTok once a week. Yeah, I would imagine it's hard to move watches. Um, if you can speak to people in their own language and you're kind of like teaching and you know not only dealing with like the most seasoned collectors, but make it kind of welcoming to newbies as well. Yeah. Um, you, you have to like also trust so much of it. Like I have a decent sized platform. You think I'm going to risk it all to sell you a bad watch? Um, like, like, you know, if someone... If someone DMs me and they have a great watch they want to sell and I don't know who this person is, they're sending me the watch first. And if you're not comfortable with that, then we're not making a deal. You think I'm going to scam you with all this? Like, you know, even beyond the TikTok, you know, there's Craft and Tailored, there's my Instagram account, there's like all my personal information, Cameron's, you know, it's like, you think we're going to risk this? to screw you out of your grandfather's watch, we're not. And I think if, you, if, you're, if you're just some guy with a new Instagram account or a new TikTok account, I think you're also not going to have that, which is kind of like a big, important aspect of this as well. Um, also, yeah. you, need, you need like, obviously you need like a resale certificate, you need a tax ID, you probably want to be a member of IWJG, which is like the, you know, the Watch and Jewelers Guild, which all the major dealers are mm-hmm. a part of. Um, you know, it's not super easy. Listen, if, you, if you're able to get a Daytona at retail, please, by all means, flip it for double or triple. More power to you. <laughs> But like, don't get confused as to think that's how things are regularly going to go for you. Right. So that, that's probably the most asked question is how do I do this? Uh, that's that's great advice. One of the things I noticed you, you I don't know if you've always been collecting these, but at least you're telling other people that is um, auction 
catalogs. Yes, I love the auction catalogs. I, I that's literally what the microphone is sitting on. Like these, <laughs> like these old auction catalogs. That's what my microphone's sitting on right now. Yeah. Um, I think this is an amazing source of information. Um, it's you know stuff that's not on the internet. There's no photos of some of these watches on the internet. So if you're only relying on what Google image search is going to bring up, you're missing decades of information. Um, also, you know, it's sometimes you'll get a watch and you're thinking, okay, is this uh, you know not a Rolex, something even more obscure, sure. and you're and you're thinking like, is this real? Is this all correct? Then you gotta think like who would be faking this who would be spending the time to like to cast a fake gold case to make a fake galley or you know or something like or and like who is who's doing this so in the you know in within the the, the same idea is like you can look back at these catalogs from the 80s when the subs were 500 dollars. Oh was God. there was there the the appeal of like faking this when it, when you could buy them so easily there were so many of them laying around so basically you could look through these catalogs and say okay this is what this watch is probably supposed to look like in an untouched mm. state um like there was the controversy at Phillips over the the, the Cartier crash, the London crash yeah. from uh, late December, where at the last minute someone revealed that it may have been a forgery. Um, the person who consigned the watch to Phillips says they bought it from Sotheby's in like in the nineties. So now I'm you know looking through every single catalog from the nineties looking for that watch, and had I found it, which I didn't, but only because I don't have all the catalogs, right. you know, that would have been a very 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 important piece of information one way or another, whether it was real or fake, for them to say we got it from Sotheby's in the nineties. I'm like, okay, well I'm gonna find that. Um, you know, I think you know there's again, it's not on the internet. It's only in these catalogs. I've been buying them on eBay, buying them where I can find them. I'm probably missing, you know, I, I'd love to have everyone from like the eighties on, but you know, there's, I probably have a hundred of them. It's probably 500. Oh more than yeah. I that's, need. I mean, that's like a, a ton. I, I remember at one point I had like four huge boxes filled yeah. with free and easy magazines. Cause I would just collect yeah. so much old print stuff. And my wife made me uh junk them all, which even I, I remember I'd spent probably thousands at wow. with, with that many free and easy mags. And, um, I left them outside of my building in just the trash heap. Cause it was too heavy yeah. to even carry. It was, it was such a shit show but yeah. like all those catalogs are gold i mean they're yeah. it's it's incredible um mm-hmm. damn five w- was there anything that you saw that you're like that oh yeah there was there was like tiffany signed paul newman lemon dials like the the craziest combination of things you could imagine um what's funny is even the cartier crash was still 30 grand in the early 90s or whatever so it was always selling for a lot oh wow there were, what's what's funny is and people i think nick fox says that says that like in the 80s there was like a big collector boom of Cartier. And what's funny is I look at some of the old Cartier items and they're only back at that price now, 30 or 40. Like, for example, like, uh, you know, like a, a tanks and tray might have been like, you know, today, maybe you're paying 40 grand or something. Uh, it depends. It depends which era, but say, say it's 40 grand. If I look at a catalog from the 80s, it's like 38. It's like there really was like this big collector's boom way, way, way back. And it's only now re catching up to that as well. So it's pretty wow. funny to see some of these because you'll see subs. You'll see Paul Newman Daytona's for $1,500 or $2,000, <laughs> but you'll see, you know, a uh, tank normal like the one Jackie Onassis wore, which was, you know, it still might have been 10 grand back in the yeah. 80s. So it wasn't like it was super cheap back then. Rolex. Yeah, that's, were, that's something I still think is so nuts where, you know, a friend of mine, his dad collected Rolex and he's the thing he always says is he was like, they, 
it, it was never, it never costs what it truly costs now. And I, you've done this too on your TikTok of like calculating like what it would have cost for inflation. Yeah. He's like, you're not going to have, you know, he's like, I don't know what company is going to give people. Cause he ran a, um, he ran like a, uh, not, it wasn't like Dow chemical, but they, they, they sold cleaning supplies and, okay. um, basically all of his execs got, uh, like date just and on the back, mm. you know, they, and he was like, yeah, he was like, it was, it was a lot of money at the time, it, you know, but it was still not, you know, he's like, if I were to buy all my execs date just now, he's like a, you know, date just like eight grand or nine yeah. grand. Um, mm-hmm. but he was just like, yeah, he's like, I bought 10 watches. I just went in, I said, can I get 10? And they put it on the dial and it was like, you know, a few hundred bucks each. Mm-hmm. Um, that that's still to me, like just the craziest of how much those have gone up. And the fact that like people like they're just not rare. There's, there's nothing mm-hmm. rare about a Rolex. And I say it as an idiot who will continue to basically only buy Rolex. I mean, it's, just, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, I don't know. I'm, yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm, it's like people, the other, another question people ask me all the time is what's the best watch to invest in? I oh. always tell people these are not investments. Just be, you should be glad that we have a hobby we could participate in where your money doesn't go down the drain you, the second you buy something. Like just yeah. be grateful that maybe you can get your money out of it, let alone an investment. I, I don't talk about watches like that almost ever. Um, and it's like, it seems like that's all people people care about like whatsoever is like, what's a good investment. I don't know. Go, go buy the S and P 500. I don't, I don't know what to tell you. Um, yeah. An index fund is still better. I mean, even, even what was it? I'm, well, I won't mention his name, but there was a dealer who started a hedge fund style. Yeah, there, there's thing. more than one yeah, of those. I think. And yeah. it's obviously has not been the best right. investment. I mean, imagine like buying a Nautilus for, you know, for an investment purpose when it was $200,000, like over a year ago or, you know, a year and a half ago. I mean, those people probably don't think they're, <laughs> think it was a very good investment. I think oh it's yeah. A good investment if you can get it if you can get it at retail then yeah it's an investment of uh 12 hours later you could sell it for quadruple that's a good investment if yeah. you have access to the retail once and- to a text uh this year or maybe it was late last year from a friend and it was like all caps and it was and they wrote like kirkland you fucking idiot like i had just bought a gmt and I had heard about you, you got a GMT. I, I, so I got one too. And by my calculations is what they wrote. It should be worth forty to $50,000 now. And I was like, first off, I didn't tell you to buy the watch. Yeah. Second, you know, but it was, I was, he was so pissed at me because he had wow. bought it for, I think he bought it for like 35 yeah. and you can't, I mean, no one's buying a GMT. That's the reason why I don't, I, I never, again, I, you know, if you, uh, I can't imagine like telling every customer that comes in, this is a great investment. This is going to go up. Like how yeah. have you even survived the last year? Luckily, with vintage, we there really we haven't seen. I mean, people will also comment another frequently asked question like, "Do you think the market's going to go down further?" I'm like, "Well, it really hasn't done much for vintage, and that's the no, only yeah. market I care yeah. about. I don't deal with or care about or pay attention to modern Rolex. Period. Um, yeah, there was like a little dip in vintage, but you know, at, at collector grade, at museum grade, there's no there's no dips. Um, so I have yeah. no idea what's going on with like I couldn't I don't know what a modern GMT really costs today. I don't know what a Hulk costs really. Yeah, so you know, as always, th- this is an infinite resource. They can make as many of these as they want tomorrow. Like tomorrow, Patek could be like, oh, we're quadrupling production on the Nautilus. We're going to flood yeah. the market with Nautiluses. Um, so yeah, who knows? I mean, that's why I, that's one of the reasons why I like uh, vintage. It's a very extraordinarily finite resource. Yeah, I'm still a little too scared to get into vintage outside of and not that i don't trust anyone but it's like i don't know like i mean yeah we, we've talked about cartier stuff where i'm like yeah like maybe i should get a cartier maybe i should do it and it's just like it is a minefield if you don't have someone good guiding you there i mean there's like cartier has been extraordinarily counterfeited over the years yeah and i don't even know what i like because everyone's always like well what is the stuff that you like i mean you know i, I tried on your watch i've mm-hmm. tried i will say i'm so fickle 
even though like I always pretend I'm a very nice person. There's like five different people and the second they get something, I'm like, it's over. And this, you know, a bunch of them have been like, oh dude, I just got a sick tank. Yeah. And I'm like, well, I can't get a tank yeah. now because you're a clown. That's funny. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, yeah, it's also, it's like when there's only a handful of important models they make, then like everyone is going to have like a tank or something. Luckily it is like extraordinary. It's like a sub. It's like extremely iconic. Also, that's why yeah, I, made, I made it a point to, you know, all my Cartiers have like something pretty unique about them. That's kind of hard to tell, you know, at first glance. Oh yeah. 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 For sure. Uh, well, Mike, this has been a joy, a pleasure. Very, very grateful for your time. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much, man. It, it, it was great to have you on. Thank you. Appreciate it. You've been listening to Blamo. Our show is produced by Blamo Media. We're edited by Amar Lal and our theme music, as always, by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. If you like what you heard, share the pod with a friend. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, I don't know, whatever it is. Follow us on Instagram for all the hot content. And if you want to talk to us and give us your hot take, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at info at blamopod.com and we'll, uh, we'll put it in the show or something. I don't know. Last but not least, if you want to hang out with us or join the Blam fam, visit patreon.com forward slash Blamo, where we have tons of exclusive episodes, exclusive shows, and our amazing Slack community. All right, folks. See you soon. Thank you.